Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I came across today's book at a rather serendipitous moment. On a research trip to D.C. and Albany, New York not long ago, I listened to the audiobook of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, or The Evening Redness in the West. For those of you familiar with the tale, you'll know it's not exactly pleasant listening for a leisurely drive. Blood Meridian is the classic revisionist western, a story of the unspeakable violence at the heart of America's expansion in the Southwest. There's a tendency, of course, to chalk up the more brutal passages of McCarthy's novel as hyperbole, drawn more from the mind of its dark author than the historical record. Then you come across a book like the one I'll be discussing today, and you're confronted with the truth that violence isn't peripheral to manifest destiny, but its constitutive element. In 1872, as the U.S. sought to clear out the indigenous population of the newly incorporated territories in the Southwest, the military came upon an encampment of Yavapai Indians, sheltering under a rock overhang in a canyon above the Salt River in Arizona. The soldiers rained down bullet fire and boulders. A massacre. Everyone was killed. Well, almost everyone. A few days earlier, the advancing soldiers had come across a young boy, maybe eight or nine, looking for a missing horse. He was alone, abandoned, perhaps. The soldiers scooped him up. The American commander, Captain James Byrne, the one who ordered the boulders to be pushed down on the young boy's parents, aunts, uncles, siblings, and cousins just a few days later, adopted the young boy, naming him Mike Burns. Today I'll be speaking with Gregory McNamee, a prolific writer and editor who has published the autobiography of Mike Burns. What the dark revisionist westerns like Blood Meridian so often miss is that even in the face of genocide, some survive, persist, and find ways to adapt to the changing world around them. Mike Burns was such a character. Living in two worlds, Mike Burns worked for the U.S. military as a scout in the campaign against Geronimo, but later returned to his Yavapai relatives to learn his culture. He traveled east for boarding school and back home as a farmer. He was a writer, an amateur anthropologist, a documentarian of sorts. His story is nothing short of incredible, and I'm so pleased to get the opportunity to discuss it with his insightful and respectful publisher, Gregory McNamee. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Gregory McNamee, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, today we'll be discussing the fascinating autobiography of Mike Burns that you've edited and published with the University of Arizona Press. It's entitled, The Only One Living to Tell, The Autobiography of a Yavapai Indian. Before we talk about Mike Burns, I'm hoping uh, you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your own biography. Well, um, um, I, I've been called a born editor, by which uh, by which I think I mean um, that I can talk about any subject for about three minutes and then be completely out of things to say. Um, so I'm a generalist. I came 
<clears throat> excuse me, into um, uh, into adult life by way of publishing, and uh, have always worked in publishing for the last uh, 35 years or so. 40, if you count a brief career in book selling before then. So, but in all events, I've always been around books, and uh, I have done um, uh, 35 books prior to the Mike Burns uh, story, and. Uh, um, and uh, I'm a contributing editor to the Encyclopedia Britannica, where I write uh, about world culture and geography and uh, film and all kinds of things like that. And so um, I come into the work of doing my autobiography very much as a generalist, but with quite a lot of background in the history and the natural history of the Southwest. Mm-hmm. And um, so about 10 years ago, the then director of a little museum up in uh, central Arizona, in the central Arizona highlands in a town called Prescott, uh, came to me with this manuscript and, and uh, taking my, asking my advice both as a publisher and as a writer about what to do with it. And, 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 and that's the Mike Burns the beginning of the Mike Burns story as we know it today. Wonderful. Um, you've anticipated one of my questions, which is how you came to find out about Mike Burns. Uh, but we'll, we'll get back to his biography in a minute. I want to start by um, getting you to set the stage here a little bit for our listeners. And, and starting first with the Yavapai Indians, of which Mike Burns is one. Uh, our listeners, especially those on the East Coast, might not be familiar with the Yavapai. And I'm, I'm hoping you can... Um, sort of lay out what you think is important to know going into this autobiography about not just the the people themselves, but but what they faced uh, in the late nineteenth century. Um, yeah, absolutely. The um, the Yavapai. Um, I don't think it would be unkind to say that they were kind of the poor cousins, the poor relations of the better known. Uh, peoples of the Arizona Highlands. And by the Arizona Highlands, I mean the the country between the low desert um, with the saguaro cacti that's so familiar to us from postcards, and then the very high Colorado Plateau where the Grand Canyon is located. And in between that country lies a band of mountains and mesas and plateaus called the Arizona Highlands. Um, uh, John Gregory Bork, who was a uh, U.S. cavalry officer who figures in the Mike Burns story <clears throat> had been posted once as a uh, observer to the uh, British Army in Afghanistan back in the 1850s, and and he likened the country. He said it's as rough as Afghanistan, so it's very wild, very remote. The Yavapai people lived in um, very small bands typically no more than 40 or 50 at a time, generally speaking, um, roaming through this country um, and lived a very uh, simple uh, uh, hunting and gathering is the classic anthropological phrase, uh, really more gathering and hunting um, because game was not especially abundant up there. Um, the Yavapai people called themselves the Kwevketaya, and there are four Paya bands in Arizona, or four Paya nations, um, and they are all related to the Pai people, Pai being a word meaning water, and the Pai, so the Pai Ute, for example, or the Havasu Pai, um, they're all r- r- related, but not so closely that they didn't go to war with each other from time to time. Um, and finally in all of this, when Anglos first came into the Yavapai territory, 
um, in the early 1860s in any kind of number, um, they had a tendency to, to, to group all Indians together. And so they called them Apaches, and sometimes they'd call them Yavapai Apaches, or sometimes they call them Tonto Apaches, or uh, or you know Yuma Apaches, or Mojave Apaches, whatever the case. They they were not Apache people, but they were lumped together, and that as the 19th century Indian wars progressed, worked very much to the disadvantage of the Yavapai people. When half of the U.S. Army was after the Apaches. Yavapai's often gotten the way. Hmm. Now, your preface to this work um, starts with a very haunting description of a particularly brutal, but uh, unfortunately not to, altogether uncommon, uh, massacre uh, by American soldiers a few days before Christmas in 1872, about 100 miles northeast of present-day Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, what brought U.S. forces to the canyon at Salt River that day, and, and what happened? Well, the once again the um, the army was uh, basically trying to clear the interior, the highlands of Arizona of Apache people. Um, these in the 1870s were the first days of of efforts to move Indian peoples onto reservations. Um, and so all through the West, you had this um, military campaign to do that. And, and in fairness, I suppose, to the people who were doing the, the dirty work of rounding up Indian people, the argument that was made by the United States government was that it was for the protection of the Indians because there were so many white settlers after the Civil War who were streaming westward and coming into Indian territory and shooting anything that moved, um, basically. And so... Um, uh, it didn't. Uh, that was the that was the, the stated mission. But of course, I mean, it really was, really and truly, was a war on Native America. <clears throat> um, in all events, uh, General George Crook and his command had <clears throat> been in charge of the Department of Arizona. Um, and uh, John Gregory Bork, whom I mentioned, was among the American military officers. All very brilliant. Uh, strategists, tacticians, and warriors who had come west after the Civil War, um, most at that time in the early 1870s, having fought in the Union Army. Um, later during the Apache Wars, a lot of ex-Confederate soldiers. But uh, whatever the case, the um, the U.S. Army was in the Highlands trying to move, um, in this case, Yavapai people down out of the mountains and into the reservations. The Yavapai I should say, happened again to their disadvantage to live in country where gold strikes were being discovered, gold and silver strikes right and left. And so um, it was um, um, it was uh, all of that by way of context to the fact that then the cavalry happened to, or excuse me, the U.S. Army happened to find a band of Yavapai people who were sheltering in a place that has come to be called uh, Skeleton Cave. Hmm. Now, you write that the incident was originally known as the Battle of the Caves, but you point out yes. that it's now more accurately known, uh, more fairly known as the Skeleton Cave Massacre. I'm wondering, do you, were you able to trace or do you have any uh, knowledge of how that revision in, uh, in, in the history or popular consciousness occurred to, to call it by its accurate name? And, and why is it, why was it more of a massacre than a battle? 
<clears throat> well, it was a, a massacre to the extent that the um, the the Yavapai people. There were a few um, Yavapai men, and a few of them had guns, um, but most of them were women and children. And again, as I say, they were sheltering in this cave, and not a deep cave, just sort of an overhang more than anything else that extended back about 30 feet um, away from the Salt River and up on our cliff a couple of hundred feet above the river. So the um the, the the cave was was uh exposed to gunfire from above and that's precisely where the army uh, arrayed itself on cliffs uh facing and above the cave so that they were able to fire bullets in that were most of the damage was inflicted was ricocheting bullets off of uh, off of the rocks um and to add Injury to injury, um, the um, the soldiers also rolled boulders down on top of the people who were below them. And so um, one of the interesting little side notes on that is another figure who uh, pops up in Burns' autobiography is a man named Al Sieber, who was a German-born uh, head of Indian scouts. And uh, Al Sieber was there on hand for this um, particular event. And again, as I say, they rolled boulders on top of these poor Indian people who were sheltering in the cave below. And uh, years later, Al Sieber, who was then working as a foreman of a road construction crew building a road to what is now called Roosevelt Dam, um, died when Somebody rolled a boulder on top of them, wow. and it's thought that uh, some of the Apaches who were working on the road crew may have done that. Wow. So, <laughs> some uh, not, yeah, not necessarily instant karma, but karma all the same. Yeah, absolutely. So, is it so. is it is the incident widely known uh, in Arizona today? I, I don't know if that's an ignorant question. I've never been to that part of the country, and I certainly know about um, some of the historical ignorance in, in my part of the country on the East Coast. But I'm wondering how that that incident kind of plays into popular consciousness today, if at all. I'm afraid it really doesn't at all. It's really very much unknown. And I think if you if you were to ask, I, I don't mean to sound unkind, but I think if you were to walk up to the average person on the street in Arizona and say, tell me about the Indian Wars here, um, they may have, that person may have heard of Geronimo, probably has heard of Geronimo, but that would probably exhaust that person's knowledge. And again, I don't mean to sound unkind by that. It's just that we we have had a tendency Condoleezza Rice I was watching her the other day on uh, Henry Gates's show having to do with ancestry on uh, on uh, PBS and she was saying that you know we we as as uh, as Americans we have not reckoned yet with slavery with the fact and the legacy of slavery and I think that's also true of the Indian wars generally speaking you know we know a couple of kind of peg facts that we can hang our hats on. Okay, you know, Sitting Bull and maybe Chief Joseph and, oh yeah, Chief Seattle, that groovy guy that said nice things about living with the earth. And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Tecumseh. Mm-hmm. And certainly Geronimo, but but that's really about it. And so, so the facts of this massacre, and there were many many others going on. The 1870s were a terribly bloody time throughout Arizona, 
um, uh, and and mostly one-sided. I mean, that is to say, for every um, settler or two that was killed by Indian attacks, there were a hundred Indians who were killed by settler attacks. Now, this book, this beautiful book that I have in my hand here, this autobiography of Mike Burns, uh, he could have died at that massacre today, but but he didn't. He survived. How did how did Burns or, or I'm going to pronounce this wrong, even though you told me how to pronounce it, Humutya? Uh, how did how did he come to survive this massacre, and what happened to him in the aftermath? Humutya, um, which means wet nose in Kwefkepaya, um and and that which probably means runny nose. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Andrew, the truth is that we don't really know why he survived. Um, he, his account and that of the cavalry officers who found him uh, differs ever so slightly. And I don't want to give away too much of the story by uh, by saying that, but there there is some question about how the cavalry came to find the Indian band, and there's some thought that's they they found him because the little kid was out there looking for his family mm-hmm. um and uh, uh uh and they just uh, sort of uh followed him as he made his way to the cave um we don't we don't know that for a fact um whatever the case yeah he was out uh, you know the 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 main band of Krevkapaya had established itself there at the cave and um people were still coming in from out in the countryside you know little ones and twos and fives of people and so in the case of uh, Burns he said that he and an uncle were coming in um from uh, from uh, foraging, basically gathering food out in the in the mountains nearby, um, when they were taken by cavalry, and the cavalry killed the uncle, and uh, and uh, having already killed Burns's uh, mother and father, um, and again we don't know um, to to um, to historical precision any of this. Um, um, there's a and I, I should sort of say in that that there's there's a great deal in Burns's account that if you strictly added things up chronologically and compared it to the to the to the white kept historical record, there are points of divergence uh, all the way through. And my tendency is to think um, even if Burns isn't strictly accurate at some points. Um, Things he believed that things happened the way they happened, and that's the important thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I want to leave a lot of the story, as you said, to to the readers. Uh, but one of one of the most captivating things about this work that I'm hoping you can speak about broadly um, is is the way in which you write that Burns is a character that inhabits two worlds. Uh, what do you mean by this? How, how did he how did he deal with the uh, or understand the competing? Uh, forces on his identity, and I'm, you know, we're fast forwarding a little bit. Obviously, he uh, he is kind of adopted into the U.S. military. He works for the U.S. military. He's very much in the white world, um, but but eventually, kind of returns to his uh, his ancestral world. Uh, how does he deal with with these two worlds, and then what are these two worlds he's inhabiting? 
Well, as you say, um, the, 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 the first of them is after his family is killed and after his people are massacred there at the cave, um, the soldiers take Burns back with them to their post, and their main post is a place called Camp Whipple, later Fort Whipple, which is now just outside of modern-day Prescott, Arizona. Um, and uh, there they... They, um, well, the commander of the unit that he um, that has taken him is a man named James Burns, who's an immigrant from Ireland, who is now a captain in the in the uh, in the army, and Burns adopts him. Um, and by adopt, you know, I don't mean to say that he um, he affords him a loving home with a bedroom and stuffed animals or things like that. It's more he adopts him as kind of a houseboy. Um, you know, here you go run down the hill and fetch the water and all that. Burns, uh, uh, James Burns has two children, a son and a daughter, who it's pretty clear they, they don't spend a lot of time together, young Mike Burns and the two Burns children. But nonetheless, for the next few years, he lives in the household and he's part of them. And he comes to think of himself as James Burns's son. And apparently James Burns encourages him in that because James Burns, according to Mike Burns, says, you know, when all of this unpleasantness is over, I'm going to take you back to Ireland and introduce you to my family, and you will come and see your native country uh, there in Ireland with my native country, and uh, and um, and you will partake of our fortune, and uh, and so on and so forth. Well... It's not the way it worked out. James Burns um, moved his family back to Washington, D.C., and he didn't leave a forwarding address. And and then he himself began to move toward Washington, D.C., and unfortunately died of of some illness en route. But uh, meanwhile, Mike Burns is left back behind at the post. And for the next several years, in late childhood and into early teendom, he's basically the ward of these cavalry troops who are very kind to him, and they 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 you know they buy him uh, when he's a little kid. They buy him a sailor suit, and when he's older, they buy him tobacco, you know that kind of thing. And uh, but even so, he's growing up not knowing much about his people. Um, He's growing up speaking a kind of a broken English, and as the years roll by, he's more and more removed from any Quevcapaya people. And it's not until, well, the end of this book, basically, that he is in a situation where he's back in the Indian world, and that is to say that after having been in the white world until uh, well into his 20s, then suddenly he finds himself on the reservation and uh, um, with, the, with the sense that that's, you know, that's the only thing that's open to him is here's where you are. And so um, from the 18, late 1880s, roughly, until the end of his life, there Burns is on the reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he hasn't grown up among his very people, um, and there's a, a kind of a touching moment in the book where he talks about some of the folk tales, you know, the creation stories of the Quevcapaya people that he says, my wife's family told these stories to me. Um, he would have known them growing up in ordinary circumstances, but he had to wait until he was an adult to be taught them. Hmm. Um, so, um, 
so he uh, really and truly was a liminal character inhabiting two different worlds, or on the border between two different worlds, never at home in either one. And I give an example of the manuscript, <clears throat> excuse me, the original manuscript that he um, that he wrote, um, which is in a kind of a fragmentary English that's um, that it's clear he's he's sort of thinking in some version of the Quefkepaya language and putting it down in some version of English. But but the very words on paper show to me that he really was between those two worlds. This question is stepping back a little bit, but I was thinking about it as you were describing this. And I'm wondering um, if you can speculate at least, uh, you know, what is going on for the cavalrymen who, I mean, if they had come across... Um, young Mike Burns in the in the camp uh, at Skeleton Cave. Uh, he, he would have he would have been killed with the rest of them. But uh, but but they were quite kind to him um, when he was among them. Um, and it seems like an interesting I don't know contradiction in sorts that you know you have U.S. soldiers who um, are willing and 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 do uh, uh, exhibit incredible and, and and indiscriminate violence against Native people. But they're on the other hand. Um, you know, treating treating this young Yavapai child as as one of their own. What do you make of that? Well, i i i don't I don't see that as being uh, a real outlier. Um, and and although, hmm, I'm going to work myself into a position of trouble here, but I want to say that I believe that in the overall context of Western history, the greatest indiscriminate damage done to Native people would have been done by civilians, um, ordinary miners and farmers and settlers who are in Indian territory who, as I say, shoot anything that moves. Um, The soldiers are... um, at this very moment, in fact, are under orders not to kill women and children. And I don't think that they're deliberately killing women and children at that point, um, although certainly there would have been incidents of that. Now, that said, we need to step back and sort of consider what happens in warfare generally. Um, and, uh, um, you, you know, there are incidents from and reports from the front today in Afghanistan of of terrible crimes that are done. So I don't think that these things are are rare. But on the other hand, as I say, the um, uh, Bork himself said at that point we were trying to avoid killing women and children, but but um, but but couldn't. I mean, basically, you know, there was no way to distinguish them from the heights above, um, and they certainly weren't going to hold their fire and wait for the opportunity to surrender mm-hmm. at that point too um and that's the kind of thing we can look back and at this at this um juncture 125 150 years later and say well why not and 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 we don't know the answer sure. uh-huh. to it but um so um so i there are one of Burns's cousins, uh, for example, very similar circumstances raised up by um, a family in Chicago, um, and uh, he becomes a, a very noted doctor named Carlos Montezuma, sure. uh, another Yavapai. Um, and uh, again, same circumstances, you know, family massacred, adopted, um, and just happened to have had the good fortune to be encouraged by his adoptive parents to go to medical school. 
and to become a, a real leader of uh, the Alibi people in the nineteen early in the early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. And he, that's the same Montezuma who goes on to um, to write against and protest against um, the treatment by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Is that right? I mean, exactly. So yeah, he became a, a very sh- strong early critic of uh, the BIA. Sure. Um, oh, fast forwarding now in time, I. I Apologize for jumping back and forth here, but um, that's okay. Burns does all the time in his book. <laughs> yeah, so, <sure. laughs> uh, why do you think what what led Mike Burns to write this story, to write this autobiography, and, and when does he do it in his life? You know, um, the 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 question ultimately of why I think is probably bound up in a couple of things, and one is he had been encouraged to tell his story. Um, he obviously was um, 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 uh, 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 a, a genial man and uh, and an affable one, and uh, he made friends very easily. And obviously, I say obviously, just if you read the book, you'll get the sense that he's a, um, he's a, he's a good storyteller, and he liked to tell stories. And so... Um, he found himself in that position as an elder, and he got to know um, some of the uh, whites in the community or the surrounding support community on the reservation. One of the people that he got to know was an army surgeon named Joseph Corbusier, and uh, um, he and uh, the, the the surgeon helped him uh, sort of frame his story with the idea that he would uh, write a book that would then sell. Um, he also wrote a book, uh, excuse me, he also met a man named Henry Farish, who was an early historian of Arizona, and all these people encouraged him to to, to write his story. Um, and, and we don't know whether they encouraged him by means of it's really important that you sit down and tell your tale, or they encouraged him as in, you know, stop bothering me and go off and, you know, and, and just you know, write and, and leave me alone. We we don't quite know which one of those is true. But whatever the case, Mike Burns, uh, along about 1920, let's say, um, uh, bought a typewriter. And he sat in his room with his typewriter and told himself these stories and wrote out his, wrote out his, um, his memoir at, at very considerable length and in the order that it occurred to him um, and I want I want to say that 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 all of that is unusual in the great context of 19th and early 20th century American Indian literature and memoir um, we don't have any other auto-generated I suppose you might say uh, self-generated autobiographies what we have are a lot of as told to um, white historians or white journalists, in the case of Geronimo, for example, who would sit and uh, Geronimo dictated to a man named Barrett um, his autobiography, for example. And we don't know what happened in between the words that Barrett, or excuse me, that Geronimo uttered and Barrett wrote down. We don't know, you know, no, no other person is on hand to act as a corrector or, um, or to give a second account. In this case, we do have Burns directly on paper. We know his words um, there. So, um, so that makes his piece unusual in itself. So. 
so his memoir is, uh, he, he writes his memoir then over the course of the next 10 or 15 years and, uh, bits and pieces of it here and there and bits and pieces of it get out and become known um often borrowed by um usually white storytellers uh, or historians the aforementioned Farish puts a couple of pieces uh from Burns in his uh multi-volume history of Arizona which is published in the uh, uh 1920s um anyway and uh um so I think Burns's motivation is not just to tell his story, but again, uh, the hope of making some money. One of the uh, interesting passages to me of the book is he's again writing of John Gregory Bork, who I mentioned, and Bork uh, wrote a best-selling book called On the Border with Crook, and uh, it sold you know tens and tens of thousands of copies back in its day. And uh, Burns says at a couple of points in the book, you know, Burke said he would give me some money because I helped him with uh, telling the Yavapai story, but um, I never heard from him again. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> so it was time to write his own, it sounds like. I, I think so. Um, and sadly, um, for all the encouragement that he received... And finally, Charlotte Hall, who was the territorial historian of Arizona, Burns approached her and said, uh, would you please publish my book? And, and Charlotte Hall, to trust Burns's account, said, oh, yes, I will. I will do everything I can. And then, again, to trust Burns's account, uh, if we look in the archives, we see a lot of paper streaming from Burns to Charlotte Hall and no paper streaming back. Mm. So um, so whether Charlotte Hall just had other things to do or wasn't really serious in helping Burns or what, again, we don't know. But whatever the case, his memoir wound up in a uh, archival uh, dust-proof box in the basement of a museum in Arizona, and there it sat for uh, 80 years until I came to it. Wow. Was there any uh, mention of it in... in the historical record over that 80 years, so far as you can tell, or, or was it pretty much unknown? Oh, yeah. A few scholars had known about it, again, pointed to it by largely by Farish, and, uh, and, and Charlotte Hall had mentioned it and said, you know, well, here it is, you know, here's the manuscript uh, um, available. And so from time to time, um, uh, scholars would come up and make use of it and sometimes photocopy it. Um, the manuscript was uh, in a bit of a mess. Um, there were several drafts that Burns wrote over the years, and they were all at, at uh, by the time I got to the manuscript, they were all kind of jumbled together, and quite often the pages were not numbered. And uh, so you would go from one page, you know, in the middle of a sentence, and then turn the page and be in another one that did not connect in any way. And um, some of my work in editing this book was uh, kind of that jigsaw puzzle work of where does this fit in relation to the overall story um, and trying to make sense and trying to reconcile multiple drafts that, again, were all jumbled up. Um, there is one uh, edition of the uh, called an autobiography of a Yavapai Indian, and I will say in some anger and some disgust that it was a, 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 um, a, 
an Anglo who came in, uh, photocopied the manuscript as was, slapped it between covers, put a price tag on of $35, had the audacity to put a copyright on it. Wow. And, uh, and then has, has sold the book. And that, that person who knows who she is is uh, persona non grata, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, anywhere in Arizona, although I'm not the, the emperor of the place. But, uh, uh, but certainly ought to be ashamed to show her face uh, anywhere near Yavapai country. Um, Was it difficult to get around that? I mean, when you, when you decided to publish this in an obviously more rigorous and respectful manner, was it difficult to get around that copyright? Well, strictly speaking, um, uh, the, strictly speaking, there was no copyright on the book. I mean, uh, by the copyright laws of the time, it would have been in the public domain. Um, and the um, which is an entirely different story. <laughs> you know? sure, sure. Uh, uh, but um, um, in all events. Um, well, as I say, uh, ten years ago, the director of the then director of the Charlotte Hall Museum, where this manuscript was housed, came to me and asked me to to have a look and to see if there was a story in there. And when I cracked open that archival box and started to get into it, I was I was astonished by the the quality of the book. Previous generations of scholars, I think, had made use of it. And, and had made very good use of the manuscript, but I don't think anybody had ever stopped to say, "Hey, this is a good book. You know, this this would make a great book on its own." Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, from my point of view, where I came in, and I thought uh, Mike Burns wanted his story told. He wanted to tell his story, and here we have the opportunity now, even if it is 80 years after his death, to to do so and to do so in. Uh, uh, um, again, as I hope, a respectful way um, to 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 get the word out uh, about this man and the remarkable life that he lived, and and his remarkable mind. I mean, this is as as I li- I've lived with this manuscript for ten years now, and and I am constantly impressed by the quality of Mike Burns's mind and and by the quality of his character. Um, would have liked to have known the man. Yeah. Well, as we, as we get close to the end of our discussion, I'm, I'm just wondering, what, what did you find most surprising in this, in this autobiography? Or what do you think that readers would find most surprising when they pick up a copy of this book? Um, one of the most interesting things to me about Burns is um, his... Uh, if this means anything to you, his Zelig-like quality, and by that I'm referring to the Woody Allen movie sure. Zelig, which is a, you know, it's sort of picked up in the Forrest Gump movie about a guy who just happens to be everywhere at the right time, and Burns is everywhere at the right time, and uh, and again, as I say, sometimes it doesn't chronologically add up, strictly speaking. But it's close enough. And so, for example, Burns is, he's in New York City as the Brooklyn Bridge is being built. And he's standing there on the banks of the East River looking at this and marveling at the wonder of it and marveling at the skyscrapers. And then going to Chicago, um, he is a constant traveler between these two worlds. And, and within the space of a very short time, he is chasing after Sitting Bull on the so-called Starvation March, you know, after Little Bighorn, um, as the Sioux and Cheyenne are slowly retreating northward uh, into 
eventually for Sitting Bull and the Hunk Papa Sioux, they're going to cross the border into Canada um, to, 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 to essentially declare themselves political asylum, uh, to, to seek political asylum. Um, so they're not killed. Um, but there's the cavalry chasing Sitting Bull, and there's Mike Burns along with them. Um, and there he is then in the middle of Oklahoma writing the mail, and he's in a little town in Ohio growing uh, corn for a couple of years on the banks of the Ohio River. And, you know, he's just everywhere at once. And as he travels... He's constantly awake. He's constantly aware of everything, and he's constantly making notes. Um, and one of the, um, the 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 themes, I suppose, of the book, and uh, Burns is not a complainer by any stretch, but he is someone who keeps a very careful account in his head of who has done him right and who has done him wrong, and. He is very plain as things go along to say, yeah, you know, that person did me wrong and that person did me a favor. And I owe a lot to that person. Um, one of his uh, favorite sort of um, uh, quiet um, insults, I suppose you might say, is to call somebody a good Christian. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because most of the good Christians he encounters are anything but. Hmm. So... Um, but I think overall, the surprise is, um, I, I hope that readers will, and I, and I don't mean to sound self-serving with this, but I hope that readers will come away thinking, the biggest surprise of all being, why didn't I know about this guy before? Yeah. Um, because this is primary um, reportage and primary uh, accounting of experiences that we've all heard about, but... Um, always from the Anglo side, always from our side, um, and to hear about them from the native point of view, you know, that famous anthropological phrase, is really quite eye-opening and really quite wonderful. Mm. I should also mention to readers that in, in all those amazing places that, that you've mentioned he was, he was also at Carlisle Indian School at West Point Academy. He was sitting and having a conversation with uh, Richard Henry Pratt, the uh, famous or infamous founder of the Carlisle Indian School. So, um, you know, this conversation has just touched the tip of the iceberg about what, what is in this work. Um, well, I've been speaking with Gregory McNamee, who has, again, recently released this wonderful autobiography of Mike Burns entitled, entitled The Only One Living to Tell. It's out from the University of Arizona Press. And by way of closing, Greg, I'm hoping you can, uh, and you've mentioned a little bit of this, but I'm, I'm hoping you can just talk about why you think this is important to, to engage with. You know, the importance for students of history, uh, for Americans, for Native Americans, to, to listen and engage uh, with voices like Mike Burns that they might not, and in fact, they won't get uh, from their standard history textbook. And that's, that is precisely the point, to have all of this... Um, uh, lived experience before us, um, and and to have accounts of um, at, at the heart of the book of is is Mike Burns's service as a scout in the United States Cavalry, as an Indian scout going to find other Indians for the cavalry, either to kill or to remove, um, and and that that moral dilemma is I think that's a sub subject for. 
of, of worth great discussion. I would like to think that classrooms in the future, there will be a lot of conversation about that. How could that happen? How could one Indian go to war against another in that kind of way? Um, to have Burns' account of the why of that is, is a fascinating thing. We don't have it from any other source. Um, and so that makes it an important document. It makes it an important document, I think, the mere fact, as I said, that this is a, not an as-told-to, but a direct account um, by somebody who lived all of these things, sets the book apart from, from many others. And we have, we have a, a wonderful tradition of Native American memoir with people, um, uh, and books mostly about... Um, and I can think, for example, of Geronimo's uh, story, again, uh, by um, put down on paper by S.M. Barrett, and then uh, the life of uh, Sarah Winnemucca, um, and then uh, Ishi, the last of his tribe. Uh, those... Black Elk Speaks, that's probably the most famous, and that's a, very much an as-told-to and, and filtered filtered story, Black Elk. Uh, exactly so, and, and in fact, I, I kind of hesitated to mention that because that book is so um, problematic right, in so right. many different ways. Um, and, and, and Burns is, is, is not, um, and I will open the door to some future dissertation by saying the only interference in the Burns book is the interference that I brought into it, just as his his editor and his interpreter. Um, so in that, I want to say that um, I did, as I say, a lot of reordering of elements in the book just to make the story a little more coherent chronologically. Um, and I um, um, streamlined some of the language and made it a little bit easier to understand. But um, I took pains throughout never to use a word that Burns himself did not use. Um, there, so trying to, um, to to make this a, a thoroughly readable, thoroughly accessible, and thoroughly understandable book, on one hand, uh, while um, while preserving as much of Burns as possible uh, in it. So, um, so it really is. It's a it's a very um, it, it's a document not quite like any other that we have had so far. I, I would like to think that this will open the door and that somebody will take the time to go and look in all the archives out there and find more of these books, because I'm sure there are more of them. We just don't know about them. Sure. Now, before I let you go, uh, a man who's published over 30 books is surely working on something, or at least thinking about working on something next. Uh, what, are you, what are you thinking about publishing next? What are you, what are you writing? Well, I'm launching myself into the 21st century by working on a series of uh, of uh, electronic books right now, having to do with renewable energy, and uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a tangled uh, thing, but uh, 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 and and a, a long tail lies in it. But uh, I've been working with uh, the. Um, some consultants basically having to do with trying to figure out how we can all get back to work and stop uh, digging up the mountains that Mike Burns uh, worked so hard to preserve. Sure. And so that's that's what I'm doing now. Wonderful. Well, I encourage people to uh, go to your website, which we'll link to, and follow the work that you're doing. Uh, Gregory McNamee, thank you so much for joining me on New Books in Native American Studies today. It's a, been a privilege, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to an interview with Gregory McNamee. 
editor of The Only One Living to Tell, the autobiography of a Yavapai Indian by Mike Burns from the University of Arizona Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like our Facebook page, you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.